Welcome to Trailblazer Academy. Class is now in session. Here are your professors, Caleb and Rob. Good morning, class. You may be seated. Today, we'll be reviewing the second edition Core Rulebook. This is part of our book review series where we review every core book in the Pathfinder role-playing game. Robert, this book is a big one. It is 638 pages. The meatiest of tomes. You could kill somebody with this. Yeah, mine's in tablet form, so I would have to use it as a shuriken. <laughs> oh, good. Then you have the search functionality. <laughs> yes. When we last talked, you and I, on this show, we talked about our opinions on the system when it was in its playtest state. But this is a review of the book. We're more going to be talking about the book than the system, which is why you can see that this show is not four hours long like uh, <laughs> that last one was. <laughs> Well, the first thing that I feel obligated to talk about, Robert, is that I think this book is terribly organized. Just going to make this a little difficult to break down. I want to take a second to try to explain how exactly I think this book is badly organized. So you know what I mean. I've explained a couple times about judicious redundancy, where you explain the same concept in multiple locations. You'll most recognize this when you're using your computer. You can exit out of the game using the menu system, using all F4, hitting the X button, right? There's multiple ways to do the same thing. Usually, it's a really good thing. So like, for example, in the first edition core rulebook, there's a table with how many skill ranks each class gets in chapter four skills, even though they're already listed in each class's entry in chapter three classes. It saves you time not having to flip back and forth between the two chapters. It's very good. However, second edition's rulebook here doesn't really do judicious redundancy correctly. In the second edition core rulebook, it explains the action system a many times, each time having a little piece of information the others didn't have, which leaves you asking, where do I go? Which instance of the action rules do I go to to get the full information? It's a complete failure of you judicious redundancy. They are making the mistake of having rule explanations with different degrees of completeness spread around. This leads to what Robert called in one of our previous episodes, the choose-your-own-adventure style of writing, where the book is constantly telling you to go to page X, and that very page will tell you to go to yet another page. For example, the rules for gather information is listed in three different chapters, 4, 9, and 10. Conditions have their own two-paragraph section and page-long info box in Chapter 9 playing the game. However, the more complete list of rules for conditions are in the Conditions Index. Caleb, it's an index. It's supposed to have it. Yeah, the index is supposed to summarize things or to give you a quick way to look at a bunch of stuff, not have the complete rules, whereas in the body of the text doesn't have the complete rules. And don't get me started on crafting, <laughs> Robert. Is this something you also saw? Uh, yeah, uh, pretty much all of that. Uh, crafting, very complex, especially. But all of the conditions, like you said, are at the end, like with the full breakdown, where they're just kind of mm. touched on elsewhere throughout the book. So it's just kind of jarring. Some of the reasons I'm saying this book is badly organized is like information isn't organized and gathered together. For example, in the encounter section of chapter nine, playing the game, where it lists specialty basic actions. There is an entry for the arrest a fall reaction, which allows someone with a fly speed to use acrobatics to take less damage from a fall. This reaction is not listed in the acrobatics section of chapter four skills, even though another action you can do with acrobatics if you have a fly speed is. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. There's a logical placement of information. Uh, guess where the information about breaking down a door or through a wall is? 
If you guessed the materials section that gives the item stats and how to break them, you guessed wrong. It's in Chapter 10, Game Mastering, under the Urban Environment section. But a big one, I think what, what everyone will see, is the use of info boxes. There is a ton of info boxes that have, frankly, great information. However, it's anyone's guess what information is relegated to info boxes instead of their own sections. And to compound that problem, it's very difficult to guess where these info boxes will be located. And lastly, a lot of the information in this book is presented with a prioritization for the first level characters. Good for your first read-through only. On subsequent read-throughs, I don't need the first thing presented to me or entire sections of multiple chapters dedicated to what's relevant only to first level characters. Now, it's not all bad. For example, in each class's entry, there's an info box that explains what the relevant traits mean that you'll find attached to their feats. Very good. Great example of location of placement and use of an info box. That's what I need. And it does have some like good formatting. And I love the index on the side of every odd page. The use of symbols for actions is frankly wonderful. And I do like that they use gigantic font to make it easier to understand the table of contents. <laughs> it is it is pretty big, isn't it? Yeah. On a serious note, though, the table of contents is not like you would see in like first editions table of contents, for example, where it gives you a more refined page breakdown of what's in that chapter. It just gives a very brief overview of what's in each section, which is kind of nice. Uh, <clears throat> but at the same time, like if you're looking for something in particular, you're just going to have to go check the index to find out where it is specifically in the book, which is OK, because the index is actually really well organized for this book. Sure. Yeah, we just spent a lot of time detailing what we think is wrong with the book's organization, and I'm sure we'll talk about it more <laughs> during the episode, but there is a reason we're playing, GMing, and making a podcast about second edition. It's really well designed, and everything from character creation to fighting monsters is so much fun. It's just that this book takes some steps in presenting some of that information. And I mean some. I mean, a good deal of information is presented well. Character creation is a breeze because of how well the class chapter is. The spell chapter and treasure chapters makes it so easy to choose from them. Do you remember how difficult it would be in the past to pick items when you were leveling up your character? It's such a breeze now, and spells are organized so well. And I, I just think the system is strong. It's just that the presentation in this book isn't always as strong as the system. Yeah, it's a good way to put it. With that out of the way, let's jump into chapter one, introduction. This is 28 pages. What is a role-playing game? In this section, they tell you what you need to play, like dice, a character sheet, that sort of thing. All right, this is the typical thing that you'll find in each and every RPG, just to break it down for the layman. Uh, what I really did appreciate in here, though, is they had a section or a subsection that is uh, called Gaming is for All. They talk about the social contract of your role-playing mm. game. It's very much a, a collaborative effort, and I think that's something a lot of people fail to stress when it comes to their games sure. and would be extremely useful for everybody to bear in mind moving forward. Mm -hmm. And another part is that it does specifically call out that you are going to need the bestiary, which is sold separately, or internet access for the PRD if you want to use the monsters. The PRD is the Paizo Resource Document, I believe that stands for. It's a sort of like a wiki in a way online where the information's all there for free. So it also goes into uh, what defines a character, like level, ability score, ancestry, etc., and then playing the game, a high-level overview of modes of play, and mixed in is rules such as DC, critical successes and failures, proficiency system, combat rules, and actions. 
it feels really weird the things they choose to go into detail here. Well, I think they go into some level of detail here because the example of play follows this section uh, shortly after. So I think it gives a, a better context uh, for understanding how the game operates. I think it's just a really decent summary of just the most bare bones things you need to understand before you can play. I guess. And then lastly, it talks about key terms. And the next section is, is what you're talking about, the example of play. And that's two pages, which... I gotta be honest, I'm a little disappointed that they didn't, like, take you through a small adventure to get you going. Uh, the fourth edition of Dungeons & Dragons, Starter Edition, which I've talked about a couple times, I'm not sure on our show here, but in interviews is where I got, this, essentially where I got my start with role-playing games. That had, like, a little mini-adventure, and as you went through it, you built your character, and I've seen no better way to introduce a player to the game, ever. Because it like gets you in having fun as you're learning about the system. I was more expecting something like that. But instead, it was just like if somebody recorded a few minutes of a session. Like, all right, what do you do, John? The monster's in front of you. Okay, I I'm going to attack. Okay, roll a d20. That sort of thing. Not bad, but it's not great. Not great, not terrible. Yeah, I'm sure maybe they could have done something like that. But this is a, a big enough book already. And I'm not saying Paizo needs to do it. But I feel like it's not really a proper example of play. Uh, that wouldn't be complete without at least one person. Like cursing on a natural one. Or <laughs> someone trying to play someone else's character. <laughs> There's nothing in there like, I'm not sure that's what your character would do. Can I see your alignment again? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, there's a section called Using This Book, where they break down each chapter. Uh, this should have been one of the first things the reader sees, not buried in the middle of the chapter, but okay. Yeah, this is literally just a repeat of the table of contents with some added detail, minus the page numbers. Then a format of rules elements, where they break down how they format rules. Page 16 and 17 should be pages you come back to when you're first learning. Excellent breakdown of the book's chapters and the action system with well-formatted symbols. Again, stuck in the middle. And then character creation, obviously going to be a big section. They talk about ability scores first off before getting into the steps. And then they jump into the steps. Step one is create a concept, which is like an awesome two-page spread with at-a-glance info about all the ancestries and classes, such as their like important ability score info. Wonderful two pages to hand that to a new player, I think would be wonderful. Even as you, even as like an experienced player, looking at it when you're deciding what you want your character to be, I think a lot of people will still do that. And the, uh, the astute observer will note that Constitution is recommended for every single class. <laughs> I would love for you if it like, wasn't for like the wizard. There's <laughs> just a little like asterisk. Honestly, you can kill them before they get to you. As the steps go on, there are little info boxes about what exactly you're modifying on your character sheet. For example, write your character's class in the space at the top of the first page of your character sheet. And they also have two pages with a label with the step number pointing to the sections that the step will address. I think it's super great. Very helpful. I don't use character sheets a lot because I hate finding all those things and converting all the numbers and keeping that up. I use programs for that usually. But this makes it so much easier. Then step two says start building ability scores. Uh, wouldn't this have been a better place to put the section on ability scores? The answer is no, because this step shouldn't even really exist. It's almost entirely saying, hey, go look at the ability score section a few pages ago. The only new thing it says is that start them all off at 10. Okay, great. Running out of page space, we can't add enough of example of play, but don't worry, we've got <laughs> enough to repeat ourselves. 
I almost find step two to be kind of redundant here, actually, because you don't actually start building ability scores until you do the following couple steps. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. is this is this even needed? Is it weird? It's, it's like ability scores. We're going to mention them three times. Step three, select an ancestry. Step four, pick a background. Step five, choose a class. Step six, determine ability scores. There it is. Step seven, record class details. That's the stuff on each class's first page, like initial proficiencies and that sort of thing. Step eight, buy equipment. Step nine, calculate modifiers. Step 10, finishing details. And then there's a sample character and it goes through all the steps as an example. That's pretty cool. And then leveling up. There's a nice little checklist of when you level up, look at these things. And that's chapter one. We've already become angry. (laughs) (laughs) Chapter two, ancestries and backgrounds. And there's 34 pages here. I'm going to mention this now just so we don't have to repeat it every time it comes up. But before giving a list of rules, they always explain how they're formatted and what each line item means. So for like example, in ancestries, in this case, they define hit points, size, speed, etc. So you know what they mean when you see them in each ancestry instance. All right. So we have six races or ancestries, as they're now called. We have dwarf, elf, gnome, goblin, halfling, and human. Uh, In each entry, you will find stats listed such as hit points, size, speed, ability boosts, ability flaw, etc. A little gripe of mine about this information is that it's in a sidebar and not the first thing you read on each entry after the little fluff piece. Uh, This is just me being nitpicky. I tend to have blind spots for sidebar material when I'm looking for information that I've assumed should be in the main body of text. Right. But uh, that's the danger of making assumptions, I suppose. Especially in this book, it's a lot of times the, the info box stuff is important. Okay. Um, After the stats, you've got heritages. Now, uh, we're not going to be doing a lot of comparisons to first edition, but we would be remiss if we didn't mention that half-orc and half-elf are human heritages. Also, each ancestry has its own feats. There are male and female pictures. And guess what? They're in more than just their underwear this time. What a step up. (laughs) And not only stats, uh, but there's lore information as well, such as physical description, society, alignment, religion, and even like little sections that say you might do this or others probably think this. For example, in the dwarf entry, one of the you mites says you might appreciate quality craftsmanship in all forms and insist upon it for all your gear. And one of the others says others probably assume you are an expert in matters related to stonework, mining, precious metals and gems. Then you have the list of backgrounds, then some languages uh, that get their own page. And it briefly touches on ancestral language, regional language and sign language. Yeah, I'm particularly fond of how they implemented sign language. It's no longer its own language. There's a sign language for each language, much like in reality. Yeah, and it would be a good place to point you to the game mastering section that has more information about the topic, but it doesn't. It instead points you to their campaign setting for regional languages. (laughs) Okay. Okay. (laughs) Well, next is chapter three classes, and this is 166 pages. It's the biggest section of the book, even bigger than spells, and as well it should be. We get 12 classes, the alchemist, the barbarian, the bard, the champion, the cleric, the druid, the fighter, the monk, the ranger, the rogue, the sorcerer, and the wizard. A lot of people would compare the champion with the paladin. Paladin is like a subsection of champion now. There's a short description of each class with a cool little logo for each. And I would like those logos offered on the Paizo store in pin or patch form, please. Thank you. Okay, Robert, now that you mention this, 
a lot of people sell pins. A lot of people, it's like a Patreon reward or it's part of their in-game store shirts, which seems pretty ubiquitous. Makes a lot of sense. And then pins. How well do pins actually sell? What do you do with pins? I don't see a lot of people wearing pins. The only time I ever wore a pin was a lapel <laughs> on my suit. I don't understand pins. Explain them to me. Are we in a bottle cap situation? Maybe it's like a, maybe it's just a regional thing. Like I see them on people's ski jackets all the time or on their game bags with their dice, stuff like that. I don't know, man. Like I would, I would use them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you said ski jackets, Robert. You see yeah. a lot of people with ski jackets around. Well, I live on a mountainside in Utah, so. <laughs> okay, all right. Is that sort of a year-round thing? Do people <laughs> usually. I don't get it, Robert. I don't get it. Hey, people were still skiing in July this year. No, I don't. It's not the snowing thing, the year-round thing. It's the pins. I don't understand <laughs> the pins. Why do people... Guys, write into me. Don't write into me. I don't want to hear from you. Tell me about what What the heck do you... Why do you like pins? What do you... Is it just collecting them? I like to have... Mm, I have my little, my little collection of pins and I display them. Yeah, man. That way, if Wonderful. you see someone else, that way you know that they're cool people. <laughs> I, one of the lapels I'd wear in my suit, which uh, was uh, Majora's Mask. I got it with, I think, like a th- special 3DS. I don't recall. And people would go, oh, hey, I recognize that. I go, oh, yeah, I call this my nerd detector. <laughs> Most people just go, oh, that's nice. That's so interesting. Is it a heart? My answer, of course, is always, yes, it's just a heart. There's one page at each class as a start for important stats, such as initial proficiencies, key ability. It's still, Robert, pins. What? It's, <laughs> is it only on bags? Like, what do you, if you're going to collect them, where do you display them? I don't understand this. Hat, collar bag i mean that's that's all i got that's all i I ever used them for is that a big it doesn't seem like i don't know like these are universal nerd fashion where people wearing pins all the time they're wearing cosplay we don't want to put pins on when it when they go to comic-con and stuff like that i just haven't seen that be a lot i don't t-shirts is about the biggest thing i could see that a lot of nerds wear i don't i don't get it robert you're different well, than me, and I won't allow it. What if you want to put them on your sweatbands, uh, a la Hot Topic style? Like, I don't know. All right. First off, if we want to talk about my Spencer's shopping ritual, <laughs> I don't want to get into it, okay? <laughs> there, As I was saying, there's a really wonderful one-page start for each class. It has those important stats like initial proficiencies, key ability scores, etc. And then there's some info about the class's role. You know, during social encounters, you might do this. And during combat encounters, you might do this very nice but again hey that's more point what's talking about like here's the first level thing that i don't need all the time there's gonna be a point where i really don't need that but it's always gonna be there whenever i try to build a character and then they break down the class features in a really interesting way where each level it tells you what you get so you don't have to flip around the book for example one of the third level entries is general feats and it'll say at third level and every four levels thereafter you gain a general feat You don't have to go to chapter five feats or the leveling up section of chapter one and memorize the rule that you get a feat at third and every four levels after. You have one place you have to go to know what your class gets at each level and it's your class's page. Nowhere else. Wonderful example of when this book does organization right. And to make fun of myself, it's one of the places where it's repeating itself because you'll find that on each class's page. Yeah, that little table, super important, extremely useful. Mm-hmm. And I'm not even talking about that little table. It's it's the the whole thing broken down in text. Each level is a new like little paragraph. Oh, yeah, that as well. Uh, and then the class feats, which are a huge part of classes now, essentially letting you build them. And then useful tables and charts. And there's at least two example builds. They're small, like designed to like a, you know, an eighth of the page for each class. 
Yeah, I actually really like those example builds. They are great inclusion for newer players, and they're formatted just really well. Just everything at a glance that you need to know. Mm-hmm. Big asterisk. If you're about optimization, though, you're definitely better off becoming familiar with the system and building something of your own. But it's a great jumping off point. Sure. And then at the end of this chapter, there's animal companions and familiar rules and then archetypes. And in this book, there's only the multi-class archetypes for each class. And be prepared to fight over familiars because they are not really well explained. (laughs) Is that right? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Well, I think by far this is the strongest chapter in the whole book in terms of content and organization. Agreed. The next chapter is chapter four skills, page 22. And you kind of notice that Robert and I sort of have passed each other each chapter. We kind of, hey, we'll head that off for the discussion for the episode. And I'm only now noticing when I see only three bullet points for this chapter that I've given Robert the smallest chapter. So Robert, tell us about chapter four skills (laughs) of only 22 pages. Okay. Well, uh, there are descriptions and rules of making skill checks. Pretty useful information to have when using skills. In total, there are 17 skills, not counting lore. And you'll find a description of each skill and what actions you can perform with them. Uh, There's also a big fat table breaking down how many actions for each skill or what mode of play they need at a glance that is uh, particularly useful for player and GM alike. Mm -hmm. A short chapter, but I think another well-organized chapter in the fact that what's in it is well-organized. There's content that's spread around the rest of the book that I wish was here, but still what's here is actually very good. Yeah, I should note that you will spend a a good deal of time becoming familiar with what each skill can do, because not only do they have out-of-combat application like we've used in previous editions, but there's quite a lot of in-combat material that's tied to the usage of skills. So getting familiar with this section is going to be super useful. To break a little bit away from the book review to talk about the system a little bit, I do like how there's some of these skills that are like, there's things that you can do with any of these four skills, like recall knowledge and things like that that are sort of at the start. Those are actually pretty cool. Well, the next chapter is chapter five, Feats. It's only 16 pages, which is kind of sad in a way. You think about it, you think feats are such a big part, but now class feats are so important. It did kind of reduce down feats a little bit, but I think, I mean, if I might say, I do think they should have a few more feats, but we'll get into that later, I suppose, at some point. So you get general and skill feats. The vast majority of these are skill feats. And after looking through all the feats, I couldn't find a single skill only feat. So each skill feat is also a general feat. So if the general only feats don't apply to your character concept, you can always just opt for additional skill feats. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of nice. There are two tables, one for all general feats, another one for the skill feats group by which skill they require and in level order. Tables list the name, level, prerequisites, and a short description. And then after that is the detailed entries of each feat listed alphabetically. Well organized, well done. Then we jump into the next chapter, chapter six, equipment, 26 pages. Okay, so first things first, equipment runs on a bulk system now, and bulk's great. It's a simplified inventory space slash encumbrance system, and the less math, uh, the better, in my opinion. If you don't have strength or magical items to help you carry stuff, in my experience, you'll quickly be asking yourself things like, I don't really need soap, right? Yeah. I was actually a little surprised, because I... I don't normally buy all those little things and starting with a new system and having bulk in there. I'm like, let's do it. And it was it was kind of like, oh, I really have to make some decisions here. I can't just have some pots and pans and soap because I was actually getting encumbered. Yeah, I think starting out, it's going to be like that, which is kind of a shame because I do like to have all the little minutia on my character sheet, you know, like soap, for example. <laughs> sure. I, I will say 
I recall that Paizo said they were looking into some way of sort of increasing in a manner, uh, relieving this problem. They were very careful not to say uh, increasing what you can carry initially because uh, they, had, they hadn't settled on anything yet. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure they haven't yet settled on anything. They noticed that as well. Okay. Following that, there is a chart for actions uh, to do things with items like passing an item, dropping it, etc. Uh, then we get into armor. Uh, armor has the general rules for armor, a table of armor with its stats. Uh, there's, there's no individual entries except descriptions. Then we have specialization effects, which are phenomenal. There's an example here of a good info box. There's one about armor HP stats. Yeah, you could go and figure it out by reading the items rules, but here it is already calculated for you. Thank you. Wonderful. That's what an info box is for. Okay, then moving on to shields, we get the general rules for shields, the table of shields with their stats, no individual entries, again, except for descriptions, weapons are going to be much in the same bent, you get general rules for weapons and attacking, then you have a table of weapons with stats, again, no individual entries except for description, and then we get into weapon traits. Weapon traits are huge for both players and GMs, uh, so don't sleep on those. Definitely familiarize yourself with those because they make a huge difference in combat. Armor has specialization effects as well. If you're wearing plate mail, for example, you take less damage from piercing and slashing. Uh, Like chain, you take less from bludgeoning and slashing, but again, you're still vulnerable to piercing now. Then we get to critical specialization effects. Each weapon family kind of does something different, so check those out. They are make for great reading. Critical specialization effects combined with traits really help to make the decision of what weapon you use, I think, pretty interesting. In the past, please excuse me, I've, I've openly said to like Robert and myself at the start of this, I don't want to make a lot of comparisons with first edition, and, and here I am doing it. In the past, picking up weapons usually was very focused on like, all right, well, what's what has the biggest damage compared with critical range and, 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 and critical amount and all that stuff? Here, you have more th- more reasons to pick different weapons. It feels like most weapons have a place now. And yes. picking one over the other even doesn't require you to change your build. My build's this way, and it could use the greatsword. And then when my gem is free to add a magical flail, and in the past, I might have gone... I'm going to stick with the greatsword because my build's all around the greatsword. But here, I might actually still now pick up the flail and just enjoy some different things with its different traits and critical specialization effects. Yeah, you can really fine-tune what your character can do through which weapon you're going to be using. All right, following weapons, we get to gear, uh, which has a big old table of it. Then we have the listing of gear with its rules and then some class kits for starting out, which are particularly useful. Then we get to magical gear, which is a table of magical gear that a first level character could get. Uh, there's five entries that point you to chapter 11. And uh, then we get some talking about formulas. All of this information is basically exclusive to first level characters. Yeah, it is. And then moving on to services. Here's that info that you always want to know. That always comes up during your game. And in my experience, it wasn't just like when I was first a GM. It still comes up. How much for food at a pub or a room at a inn? Constantly. By the way, which I'm always overpriced. I'm like, it's 10 gold a room. No, it's like 20 silver or whatever. It's I'm always <laughs> way off on that. Uh, it's really easy now to see how much getting someone to cast a spell would cost. There's just a flat price by spell level. Oh, that's amazing. Oh, what a relief now. And now class abilities are focus spells with levels attached. You can now easily see how much it would cost for a cleric to use his cleric powers to heal you. That's not the sound of the cleric (laughs) healing. That's the sound of a glorious gift being given to us here. 
I think uh, you're not alone in overcharging people for rooms. I just like <laughs> to think that there's just this underground innkeepers consortium out there just ripping off adventurers because they know they're adventurers and haven't read the book. <laughs> Listen, they're out there. They're they are loot. What are adventurers obsessed with? Two things: one, killing things, and two, taking things from those dead corpses. And that's always money. <laughs> they have it. We want it. These idiots—they're spending so much time killing, like they know how much it would normally cost. They don't normally sleep. In hotel, yeah, it's ten gold. Oh yeah, a whole platinum, and um, that's that's a discount because I like you. <laughs> Here you go, it's the best room in the house. They're all the same. Okay, now, let's see. Uh, after services, we then have the cost of living, a table of animals, then some rules about items and sizes. Then chapter seven spells a hundred and twenty pages, the second biggest chapter of the book. They first talk about magical schools and traditions. Then they go into spell mechanics like slots, prepared versus spontaneous, how to heighten, how to cast, ranges, areas, targets, etc. And there's focus spell info here as well. There's a ton of info boxes, sort of a failure in organization in my opinion here. Yeah, I have to agree. Spells are a pretty integral part of fantasy systems. So having information scattered around almost guarantees a trip to the index. Then there's the big spell list, the meat of this chapter, and it's listed by tradition, level, alphabetical, with school and parentheticals, and includes a short description of the spell. It makes picking spells very easy. I've never seen spells so well organized. You go, okay, I'm an arcane caster. Here's all the arcane spells from organized zero uh, cantrips all the way down to the highest level. And you can just easily see the schools there. Everything is so easily seen by level. Perfect, perfect, perfect. Really yeah, it's fantastic, it. actually. And then, of course, after that, it detailed entries of all those spells listed alphabetically. And then focus spells are detailed entries by class and they're alphabetical as well. And then rituals at the end. Thing to note, rituals can be cast by anyone, so now you don't have an excuse to not resurrect the rogue. <laughs> Next is Chapter 8, The Age of Lost Omens, 26 pages. Alright, so this is information and lore for Paizo's intellectual property, basically. For their game world, and pretty much all of their adventure paths take place in it. Uh, you get a map, some general info about each of the specific areas, of which there are ten, and with a giant half-page size picture. And they talk about the cultures with art of what each human ethnicity looks like, um, a list of creatures and some factions that exist within the world there. And they talk about religions and domains. I think it's a good jumping off point for someone who doesn't want to make a world from scratch. You just picked up the cool rulebook and want to play, you can use this info. I'm glad they relegated the majority of their copyrighted material here. Makes it easier for us homebrewers out there. They can include their copyright material and all their books moving forward for all I care. As long as they keep putting them in their own sections. I'm very happy. The only real mix here is that Cleric is so tied to religion that you have to reference this section for their domains and info about their gods. And regional languages, of course. But in the past, I've, I've not been very happy about copyrighted material uh, uh, into this. Uh, the book is copyrighted. Let me say this more specifically. The sort of adventure path copyrighted material, first party world info that, that isn't part of the license they have at the end of the book. The open gaming license. I've, I've been unhappy to see that weaved about because then it's hard to know what can I and can I use. But as long as it's all in one chapter, I know don't use anything from this chapter. Wonderful. 
Yep, and I've come from the Dark Ages in a time where campaign settings were their own separate book and not always official by the publisher. Uh, so I actually kind of appreciate that they've included this here in the core rulebook. I might not have much interest in Galarian myself, but at least it guarantees that both the system and their setting are compatible, which might not always be the case. Back in the long, long ago, the ancient times of Dark where you could not find a pin to fix to your backpack anywhere. <laughs> they were dark times indeed. In the before time, in the long, long ago, I was there when they wrote the deep magics. Do not cite the deep pins to me. I was there when they were forged. <laughs> I was in the meeting. It was like a nine-hour meeting where we had to discuss what we're going to put on the pin. And half of the meeting was Caleb just going, What do we do with them, though? What? Why? <laughs> Chapter 9, playing the game is 40 pages. Oh, we're going to learn how to actually play the game. Wonderful. Here all the way at Chapter 9, how to play the game. <laughs> That's kind of funny. I'm not sure I would put it anywhere else, but that is kind of funny. It's start is like the name of the section, I believe. The majority of the, the following are going to be lessons in order of operations. There's an order of operations to pretty much all of these. So they go into specific checks like attack rolls, spell attack rolls, perception, saving throws, skill checks. Special checks, like flat check and secret check. They talk about damage, steps to dealing and receiving damage. Damage type info box in there. Conditions with a condition info box. Effects, essentially anything formatted or works like a spell. And a spell area chart, which is still great, wonderful. Uh, some people still like make casts of them so they can put them on their boards. And then afflictions, which is your poisons, your diseases, your curses, radiation even. I've never seen someone call out future design decisions. Essentially, there was like somebody stamped in the book. When you make radiation, it goes here. Chill, dude. We don't even have the witch yet. <laughs> and uh, regarding afflictions, uh, they have an info box like immediately on the following page that summarizes this whole page. So it's just I think the info box is kind of unnecessary. An unnecessary info box in this book. What are you talking about? <laughs> things about counteracting. There's things about hit points, healing and dying actions after that not a list of actions movement which is a list of types generally and then deep delve into perception light senses detecting creatures concealment and invisibility and hero points and then they're going to jump into the modes caleb why did you talk about them in that order and in, in sort of a strange way you formatted that because that's the way it was presented in the book my dude just giving you what i got so we talk about encounter mode we get 11 pages about encounter mode Combat is arguably half of an RPG game and only gets 11 pages. There's the basic structure of a battle, like step one, roll initiative, that sort of thing. Then the basic structure of a single character's turn broken down into steps, which is dumb, in my opinion. And then a list of basic actions. Hey, here they are. Finally, we're nine chapters in and here's all the basic actions. We've gotten a whole lot of specific ones, but now I know how to move and attack. Thank goodness. And uh, don't forget about your specialty basic actions. Robert, I'm going to punch you in the face. <laughs> what action is it to affix the pin to your backpack? Who even carries backpacks if you're not in school? I imagine it would be like the, the same amount of time it would take to arrest a fall. <laughs> I don't know what page that's on, though. <laughs> Maybe it's in the fly section. Movement is in here. Yeah, they also talk about force movement as well. So I recommend paying attention to that little tidbit in there. It has come up multiple times in play. Flanking, 
cover, and then there's good illustrations for triggering moves, counting, movement, flanking, and cover. Always got to get those because those are a little more abstract. It's hard to just read the text and understand it. And then special battles like mounted combat or aquatic combat, that sort of thing. Then we jump into exploration mode, which is two pages. We have travel speed and exploration activities covered there. And then downtime mode, which is one page. And uh, here retraining takes up almost the entire page for downtime mode. And a passing mention of what downtime activities there are. Not a comprehensive list. Hey, this is where they should put a comprehensive list. Sure, have the details and mechanics in their relevant sections. I'm all for that. But at least have a list with page numbers. We get a very small list, which includes create forgery. Create forgery, Robert! Yeah, I don't know about this section. I feel like they could have put some some serious expansion to it on there. Like, I think there's a lot of things you can do in downtime mode. And it's just, I don't know, it's just not really given much attention. Mm-hmm. There will be more useful information on downtime mode in a few pages later on the next chapter section on downtime mode. Yes, it's in another chapter, which is the chapter we're talking about now. Chapter 10, Game Mastering, 48 pages. Run us through it. Starting off, it goes over on what goes into planning a campaign. There's a little info box here called Tools for Responsible Play on page 485. It's actually pretty cool. I would recommend reading it. You'll jumpstart yourself is what you'll do. If you're anything like in my experience where I didn't do these things or even really, I didn't even really know these things that you should consider and they'll just improve your game as well as just help you treat each other with respect in the manner that you should treat all humans with respect, except for Robert. <laughs> Robert doesn't uh, deserve your respect. You know why? Because he owns too many pins, and he knows it. He's a pin defender. Actually, I don't even know if I have any pins anymore. Yeah, because no one does, Robert. You've made it up. You've never seen somebody with a pin. You've lied to me. Well, I used to have my school pin and, like, some pin my mom got me. A school on my pin? Coat. Your school? <laughs> why is everyone making them? <laughs> But I don't actually know where they are now. I don't know where that jacket went. It's like you're walking around like you're in a Western because you're going to jingle jangle all the time. They just seem dumb. <laughs> all right. Well, back to the book. Uh, yeah, I I do like the, the tools for responsible play. Also, prior to that, there is another info box about collaboration during play, which is nice. I think that should be, you know, harped on a little bit. And because uh, having a tyrant GM isn't for everybody. It is a group effort. Mm-hmm. You know, you sure. get what the players put in as well. All right. Uh, after that, we have preparing an adventure. Building encounter rules are pretty clean here, and they're actually better than the CR system, in my opinion. In this section, they kind of allude to it, but I'd like just a short blurb on setting expectations. Uh, That's pretty much what most of this section is anyway, so why not just call it out specifically? And they have the rarity and access info box that has caused some consternation on the forums. Uh, This is just going to be on like a case-by-case basis on how to throttle certain items or creatures in a game. Yeah, rarity is kind of weird, I think, in this system. Yeah, it's very much optional. I feel like it was sort of built into in a manner, sort of like I think downtime that I might talk about later was thinking about their the, the way they run their official organized play network, Paizo does. I think this is like they implemented this for them because there's like an official rule that everybody has to follow. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, that would be like, a good This is the rarity across the board. You can have exceptions in your own game, but if you're playing an official game, look, it's already in the book. I like to think that they just have some fail safe. It's like, listen, GMs, 
if you want to have a fallback to say that, hey, this is rare and you can't have one, we put it here in the book, <laughs> so it's rare. not all on you. I officially declare all pins is rare. Running a game <laughs> session is the next part here, and I like how they broke down these three sections. I think it's exactly what someone would turn to this chapter to learn, and it presents that info in a very logically structured way. Maybe my favorite part of this section. Okay, then we have running modes of play. There's even a small section on social encounters here. And following that, we have the difficulty classes. And with the removal of most uh, set DCs, this section is huge for GMs, so pay attention to it. Then uh, after that, we get to rewards. The treasure table here is great for GMs. There's no more guessing and accidentally giving your players less or more than they deserve and needing to, like, stay competitive. It's all there. And if you're ever doing a character sheet audit, this makes it super useful. Afterwards, we get to environment and climate. And they're just really simple, concise rules for things taking place in an environment. Like, for example, are you fighting in the Arctic? Okay, Uh, there's icy ground, which is considered uneven and difficult. Fighting in a forest? Trees don't provide cover unless they are a certain size. And light undergrowth is difficult to rain, so that allows you to use the take cover action. Little things like that. Afterwards, we get into hazards, which are, you know, like traps, haunts, and environmental things like quicksand, for example. My biggest gripe with this chapter is that there is stuff that players need in here. Table 1010, character wealth, tells you what your wealth should be by level, so you know what you can buy when you create that level character. Another example of this book, assuming you're level 1. Chapter 11, Crafting and Treasure, is 88 pages and might be the best organized chapter in the book. First is rules for how to use items, including a list of specific item actions. There's an info box listing some item traits. There's an info box listing item categories with page numbers and descriptions, which is very useful. Very useful. You're looking at that, you know exactly where to go. And then there's a treasure table, which is seven pages listed by level. It's the best table in the game. 10 out of 10. Picking equipment for your character has never been easier. You need, you know, a level 7 item. Here is all of the level 7 items. Using, like, levels for items, I guess, really facilitated this feature, and I think it's wonderful. Yeah, it's great. Picking gear is wonderful. You don't have to sort through nine volumes of stuff. Oh, it's so good. I love it. One thing to note, many items are available at multiple levels, and uh, each of these items are going to be separated by a grading system. So you have like different categories for like, let's say a healing potion, for example, you have minor, lesser, moderate, greater, major, and true. So kind of scales up with different verbiage there. And the following sections are broken down by item category with specific rules for those items, a table of the items by level, and then an individual list for each. You guys haven't been hearing it, but I've had to do a lot of retakes this episode. I've edited them all out. Uh, It's because I just spent six hours doing a lasso run on Halo Reach. Do you know what that is, Robert? Uh, Is that Legendary All Skulls Only or something like that? That is correct. Legendary All Skulls On. And the skulls do awful things like... All the enemies are upgraded. They have more health and like your bullets bounce off of their shields. Also, they explode when they die. (laughs) Yeah. Or or they throw grenades every second and uh, no more HUD. You know how hard it is to play a shooting game without a reticule, Robert? I put a piece (laughs) of tape on my monitor and uh, of those six hours, 
We spent all the, uh, the last hour of it, right before this recording, stuck on one section. You know what it's like to do the same thing for an hour, Robert? It's not uh. fun. It's very frustrating, especially when there's a lot of grenades. And then the end, we just quitted, which meant that not only was that hour wasted, but the hour we spent getting up to that point was wasted because with one of the skulls, it makes you restart the level for the beginning. Oh, so no. I'm a little tired, and that's why I'm making all these mistakes. <laughs> Maybe why I literally forgot your name a few seconds ago after using it a few seconds before that. Well, having this to put it in context, I would say it's forgivable. <laughs> Great. <laughs> <laughs> the material section is hidden in here with item health and etc. You had to, I had to find a treasure map to find it. Yeah, let, let's talk about material HP and item health. So in general, this is somewhat of a mess because of how the information has to be separated out. So like looking at this, it's going to like look like a mess because each thing is separated out by its grade, its material and its type. So just be ready to spend like a lot of time looking things up. Should this ever come up and play like shields made of special materials are also sorted out in this way. The basic mechanics, pretty easy to grasp. Finding the information as it's applicable to the situation you're in, not so easy. Mm -hmm, I agree. Well, the next section is the conditions appendix. It's six pages. This is really everything you need to know about conditions. It's the rules for conditions and then the list of all the conditions. Yeah, uh, this this particular section, when I'm GMing, I just default to sitting on this page. Conditions come up a lot in play. So if you're playing in real life, I'd even go so far as to keep these rules on a cheat sheet uh, if you don't have the condition cards, which I'm sure they're going to have printed out for this game. I haven't gotten to see the GM screen, but I imagine this, the DCs and other info is going to be on the back of the GM screen. It's too bad I play almost exclusively online now. <laughs> I don't usually have a GM screen to reference. All right. So uh, following the appendix, we get the character sheet, the glossary, and the index. Now, the, the character sheet is four pages. It is portrait now instead of landscape. Which was a big deal in the playtest? Only if you have friends like mine. One of them actually took the time <laughs> oh. to edit a PDF to get it out of landscape and right. back to portrait. So, yeah. I'm glad, I'm glad we gave enough feedback to get that fixed. <laughs> yeah, the character sheet has a lot of colors for something I imagine people might often get black and white when they scan it and copy it at the library. Paizo is in league with the printer companies of the world to make us burn through orange toner as fast as possible. This corporate manipulation must come to an end. Rise up, gamers. It's orange. Why are you still saying I need magenta? You're out of cyan. <laughs> and then there, there is this, in quotes, permission granted to photocopy for personal use only. Apparently this was a big problem in first edition. It's for like those people that, you know, have you ever... <laughs> How many times have you used your credit card? And how many times has the person looked at the signature at the back of your credit card and then looked at the signature you made and made sure they matched up? That's what this was for. It was for those librarians that would go, you know, this looks copyrighted and you're copying it. It didn't, didn't happen a lot, but when it happened, there's the annoyance there. The only time I can think of where people make you do that stupid thing with your credit card is like the freaking post office. Even the bank doesn't care. The back of my credit card says CID, and I've never once had anyone ask to see my ID. Oh, it's like, it's like enter PIN number or just press enter and we'll just run the card anyway. Then why did you ask? I don't understand. I've asked a banker to their face, what's the difference between credit and debit when I'm at the checkout line in the grocery store? And they couldn't answer me. I don't know what this illusion is, what's happening, what top level scam is happening that I couldn't possibly understand. But like art, 
level money laundering <laughs> where a banana is worth $200,000 just so we can launder my money. I don't understand what's happening with the credit to debit thing. And those were the kind of people that were like, I don't think you can copy this. So now that you got this sentence in there for you. <laughs> okay. Uh, let's see. Moving on. Uh, the glossary and the index are now intertwined, which is quite nice. R- Robert, are you saying you want to move on from my quality jokes and commentary on life? <laughs> is that what you want to do? I don't think you understand what this podcast is about. Because it's certainly not Pathfinder. No, Caleb. How could I possibly quit you? (laughs) Wow, I've never heard somebody say something like that to me with such (laughs) disinterest. (laughs) Wow. You are my world. (laughs) You had me at hello. (laughs) Ooh, calm down. I need to change my pants. As Robert was saying before I rudely interrupted him for more jokes that weren't great, the glossary and the index are intertwined. And I love it, honestly. For something with such disorganization and so many info boxes, this can be a lifesaver. I even wish this section was more comprehensive. It's something odd. They keep asking about what people think of this section, even asking this of future books. I'm not sure if they're seeking feedback on a change, like the glossary and the index used to be separate and now they're together. Or seeing if there's just enough disinterest to remove it altogether and save the page space. I don't understand. Yeah. Paizo, if you're listening, please keep it. It's keep it. wonderful. Keep it. Do it's not important. remove it. It is the only way I can get through your book. Like they have just enough information in the back. Like it's when you're looking something in particular up, you have a probably pretty good idea how it works. Just the little tidbit that they give you before like the page number on there is often enough to jog the memory. It's like, okay, yeah, I remember now. Like it's, it's great. It's great. Keep it. Well, Robert, let's talk about our conclusions about this book. Okay. I've said it before. I'm going to say it again. It's not well organized. And we're reviewing a book more than the system. We're talking about this book and its content. It's such an important part of it. And I'd like to read something Christian had in our first edition core rulebook notes. Overall, I think it's a great book that does its job well. Not just a compendium of knowledge, but a reference document that you will have to refer to when you start. Its organization and clarity are its strongest features. I have the exact reverse to say about this book. I feel as if you will need someone to hold your hand to teach you this system. Learning on your own is going to be very difficult in my opinion. Your only saving grace is that the action, feet, and proficiency systems which permeate 2E are very easy to understand. You might benefit from purchasing the PDF because of its search functionality, giving the disorganization in this book. It is a huge lifesaver when you can just search through the book in that manner. The online PRD, as Robert mentioned earlier at the beginning of the episode, is a great resource. They have, in some ways, organized information in a superior fashion. One thing they do that is stellar is that they have a table of traits, which this book doesn't even have. Not only will it tell you what each trait signifies, but it also has a list of everything that has that trait. That alone is such a wonderful resource. The action system is top-notch. Class design is top-notch. Streamlining of spell formatting is top-notch. Abundance of art, while not my favorite Pathfinder art I've ever seen, is still very good. They've kind of gone a different direction with it, which is fine. A new system, you know, we, we've sufficiently, people have had their, who like the one direction, got it in first edition. And other people like this art direction are going to get it in the new edition. That's fine. I just happen to be a first edition art kind of guy. However, there are two glaring problems with the court rule book. The book doesn't have any monster creation rules. So if you don't buy the GM book or the bestiary or an adventure path, obviously, your only option is to pit your party against other creatures with class levels. 
Luckily, the monsters are available on the internet for free, so that saves it. And then they're lacking in general feats and archetypes in this book. I think these both will be expanded in future publications. I think it's kind of silly not to think they won't be. But they they obviously know the importance of archetypes. But I hope they also understand the need for a great deal many more general feats. Okay, as for my thoughts on the book, first things first, the glossary saves this book from its organizational setbacks. Uh, you'll mostly reference the front half of the book during character creation and leveling. Then the back half of the book is for actual during play. Uh, skills, I think, are the only front section that I tend to go back to during play, but that's mostly due to a lack of familiarity. I think once you've had some time with the system, you're going to be referencing that less and less. As for the book as a whole, it's it's pretty comprehensive. It has an absolute truckload of information for a player and enough to get by as a GM. Uh, however, I think without having first played another tabletop RPG, uh, learning it from scratch is probably going to be a pain just because of how scattered all the information yeah. is. Agree. And even though you'll definitely want the bestiary, uh, at least you have a free resource in the form of the, the PRD or Archives of Nethys to help with the monsters. So it's it's not quite a one-stop shop volume, but it's it's pretty good. And then, as mentioned before, class design is phenomenal, and you've got plenty to play with and customize. And then uh, the way they implement skills, also awesome, and especially once you start uh, adding in like the different skill feats to further broaden out what those skills can do or specializing them further, quite like that. Uh, equipment is interesting and impactful to your character, even before magic items come into play. Like the weapon and armor traits are awesome. They add a ton of depth at just like the most fundamental level of your character. And then magic, uh, magic is still powerful, but it doesn't completely outclass your mundane martial characters, which is a nice change, I would say. And then uh, the little splash of Galarian lore. It's not like overbearing. It's not a huge, like overshadowing chapter of the book. And it's uh, going to be very useful for new GMs with little tabletop RPG experience. Well, here at the end, Robert, I wanted to give us an opportunity to talk about the system itself. So we're going to give five random opinions about second edition game design just to round up the show. So I want to start with something I love about the classes. I love the direction for almost every class to have a level one path choice. If you're the druid, you can focus on wild shaping or you can focus on controlling the weather or you can focus on your animal companion. And that sort of informs things as you move on. Having almost every class have those path choices, it's really quite wonderful. It makes when you replay a class make you feel like you're, you're you're almost doing a whole different class, or at least there's enough variety when you play it again, you don't feel like you're playing the same character. It's really quite wonderful, in my opinion. I hope they add more feats for classes instead of just archetypes. Like, they, oh, we need more two-handed fighter feats, so they come up with some more, and you, they just give you more of those feats that you can pick when you level up as a fighter. It's so easy with the way the system is designed to just throw in some more feats. And I really hope they do that. I'm a little bit frightened, honestly, that they're just going to do archetypes. The way it's designed, it's just screaming, just make more feats. Just give us more feats to throw in there. Mm -hmm. uh, for me, it's definitely the action system. Action system is hands down the best part of second edition. And I think that's a pretty common response from everybody who's played. So if you haven't yet, check it out. It's good stuff. Sure. Oh, yeah. It's one of the things you actually have in favor of learning the system is how simple the action system is, but it allows so much depth. Really wonderful. 
similar thing a lot of people have also agreed on is degrees of success are awesome. Having the failure or the critical failure, the success or the critical success with almost every time you roll the dice, you can get those. That's really, really cool. Yeah. Now it's kind of a complaint that I've heard, but I think it's just because people haven't really had a lot of time with the system yet is that at first glance, the game might appear to be kind of simple, but like I said, that's just at first glance. And like once you start actually playing, there's quite a bit of depth to be had in combat. Oh, surely. Like, teamwork is a huge part of like maximizing a given scenario because it's not just like the math on your sheet that makes a character awesome. It's the different conditions and stuff that your teammates and yourself can apply to your foes mm-hmm. that really make things shine. Like it's a it's as big as a difference as like getting a plus ten on a swing versus just rolling a flat die. Like that's how much teamwork can pay off. Sure. Yeah. I love the removal of items affecting your character stat progression. What used to be referred to as the big six, like, oh, the amulet of natural armor, the cloak of resistance, the ring of deflection, that sort of thing. All gone, all now built into your character. But they still added a little bit in there in the magic item section to sort of give you a little bit of the, you know, hey, look in the past, you can grab this thing that'll that'll boost it. But it's no longer part of your character's progression. Yeah, I quite like how they implemented the stat belts and uh, headbands mm-hmm. and things of that nature. I think they did it really well this time around. Another thing that I quite enjoy about it is just the the modularity of pretty much everything. Like modularity is a very good strong suit for the system now, and not just in class design, but for things like runes and producing higher level grade of items, um, as well as like retraining. Like retraining can be an avenue to like reinvigorate a character that you feel is stagnant. Like just uh, with some downtime in game, you can retrain a couple things just to see how they play out, you know? So you're not having to make a whole new character or kill off a character to get something new. Like you can experience another part of your character's class feats that you hadn't trained into initially. I think it's really solid. I think ability score creation is really easy now. Uh, the the sort of thing where it just starts at, everything starts at 10 and then you just add or reduce by two as you level up each of those things. No more, no more like this weighted point system. It's so easy. I really love it. I will say, however, I think that each ability score doesn't have enough to make them like each equally desirable for all characters. And that sentence on its face might sound weird, like, well, my fighters want some strength more or anything. No, I understand that. But I mean that like everything is important enough that you just don't go, oh, I'll dump everything just for strength. Well, no, the same logic for a reason why you might want to have constitution because its benefit is hit points. You'll want charisma. That sort of thing isn't quite there as much as I would like it to. Okay, yeah, I, I can I can kind of get behind that as well. So I kind of touched on this earlier, but let's talk about magic. Magic in previous edition kind of overshined your martial characters <laughs> at like the how, end of the day. We're not calling it the first edition. It was in previous edition. <laughs> <laughs> the edition that shall not be enumerated. <laughs> yeah, if, if you rolled a good initiative role on a late game caster, you could almost uh, invalidate certain encounters depending on how the dice shook out. It's not quite as powerful, which can be a good thing if you're a fan of the martial characters or a bad thing if you're a fan of being an insanely powerful caster. <laughs> They're kind of on a more even footing, which I re- I like a lot. You know, I I like to play both casters and your your martial characters. So I think having them where one's not totally outshining the other is quite nice. For my final thing, I like to say how cool I think the ancestries are designed. Really, really neat way. And much like how the class is, every time you play the class, you can sort of embody that class and be like, I'm still a fighter, but I'm a different fighter than before. You can do the same thing with your ancestries. You still feel, no matter what you pick for the elf, you feel like an elf. 
something that I'm going to cheat a little bit. I'm going to talk about something that's not in the core rule book, but they're lizard folk. They're also called Eruxi. As I was creating one, I found myself wanting to take every single ancestry feat because they all seem so emblematic of a lizard folk and what I imagine the lizard folk. You could make all these ones to focus on my natural claws and bites and all that and then stuff that improved those bites and like gave it a poison or like a critical. I don't quite remember what it was. You kept wanting to build on that. But then you also wanted to build on the other things like, oh, now I can detach my tail to escape from a grapple. How lizard-like does that sound? Everyone was so flavorful. I found myself wanting to pick them all. So I'm like, each time I build a lizard folk, I'm going to pick a different one and still feel as much as a cool lizard folk as the last time. It just kept incentivizing me. I want to play a lizard folk three times just so I can really feel it each time. Really, really cool ancestry design, I think. I agree. I love all the ancestry stuff. As for my final point, or is it even a point? So one thing I keep coming back to every time it comes up, I'm always just kind of scratching my head. And it's, it's what they're doing with their modes of play. Like, I appreciate what they're trying to do with the modes of play. Mm. Like, namely, downtime and exploration mode. But I think they're almost borderline superfluous. But maybe it's just because I've been playing, like, tabletop games for so long that you kind of shift between these modes just subconsciously, like, player and GM alike. If you've had any amount of experience, like, you don't really need to quantify these things. So I'm just kind of confused what they're trying to do here. Like, maybe just do some, like, GMing or gaming philosophies on these kinds of things rather than trying to put rules to them would have been a better call, I think. Some people may have heard, and I wouldn't know where they would have heard this, that I don't like downtime mode. Some people (laughs) may even use the word railed against. I don't know where they're getting this from, but jokes aside, I have uh, really mentioned how much I, I, I hated downtime mode, how much of a misstep I really thought it was. And I heard some interesting thoughts on it from the designers. And then that sort of led me to have some of my own further analysis of downtime mode. And I think I'm understanding a little bit more where they're going with it. It seems to me now, after all this new information that I've learned about it, is that downtime mode is is sort of the... You know, earlier we were talking about how they built in some stuff for their organized play. Mm -hmm. Imagine at the end of a session of organized play, they say, okay, between... Now and the start of our next session, you're going to have four downtime days to do what you want. When you come back next session, let me know what you did. That is a codifying and what a wonderful way to do that instead of like, all right, guys, when you get a chance, email me what you want to buy. Well, you guys can just we can just handle the buying stuff in between sessions. We don't have to waste time role playing. It's, it's codified now. You got four downtime days. It takes one downtime day to buy things. So now it's all there. All the stuff you want. Oh, you wanted to craft? Well, you can spend the downtime days you have to do it. These are the things you can do in between sessions. And now even if you're like me, who doesn't even touch organized play, jump out of it. I'll use this in my homebrew. In between sessions, I could see myself saying, okay, you have 10 downtime days. You can spend them doing you know, whatever it's in the book to do. And then the, all the stuff that we don't want to act out, that we don't want to role play, are, are downtime activities. And it's wonderful they have it. And I don't need to be there as a GM because one of the reasons you would still do it in the past, I would still do it while we were playing the game is because you need GM input while you're doing these downtime activities. Here now they can do them on their own, come back. We just settle what the GM part is, which is usually just result stuff at the end there. So it's actually, in a way, some of it is kind of cool. It's unfortunate that it was sort of half-heartedly implemented and that it's not exactly clear what are all the downtime things I can do. That would do a lot to help 
me be happier with downtime, but I'm not actually as upset with it as I was before. I can see some uses for it now. Okay, that makes some sense. I've actually participated in the organized play. Despite my best efforts, just trying to find one around here has been borderline impossible. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I have heard some complaints like about crafting and things like that in the first edition version of uh, okay. organized play. So that does make some sense. So in that context, okay, I can, I can actually appreciate where, what they're trying to do now. That makes a bit more sense rather than being just confused by it. Maybe what it is now is before I thought of it as something, it was a mode that you did at the table in one of the sessions. And now when I think of it as a mode that happens out of session, I'm happier with it. I'm still not very happy with it in session. I could see if you guys say we want to pass a week in game and okay what do you do for the week okay i spent four down times doing this i can see that happening in session but most of it now i'm happier thinking of it as an out of session mode well robert we're going to be doing a lot more about second edition this is just our first foray into it reviewing the book we're going to be doing a whole 100 series about it all of the 100 series episodes you saw for first edition we're going to be doing second edition versions for it we're gonna have a lot of classes on how to play pathfinder second edition i'm really looking forward to covering them we're also going to be doing our class overview series for second edition classes our ancestry overview series we're going to do for second edition uh ancestries obviously we call that race overview for first edition and then our book reviews as you can obviously see all that stuff is going to hit second edition stuff as well we're adding it onto those series and i'm really looking forward to it. i think it's going to be great man i'm i can't wait to really dig into this sink our teeth into it yeah me too looking forward to it Mm -hmm. and i'm not sure which episode we can cover pins at you'll have to think about that (laughs) you have it's a it's a two downtime day activity so you should have enough time 3d printing and you (laughs) well thank you all for listening class is dismissed trailblazer academy is part of the trailblazer network for other great rpg podcasts visit our website tblazer.net want to get in touch Email us at tblazernetwork at gmail.com. This is Johan Mertens. Thanks for listening.